Well, good morning. Uh, John was talking about neuroscience and joy, and Garrett, wonderful job talking about loving God and loving our neighbor and a relationship, and um, I think those things will be echoed through the next few minutes as we discuss some things. We have an interesting challenge this morning. I'm going to try to wrap up this little mini-series that Les put together on Christian maturity, tie it to discipleship that we've talked about throughout the year, and anchor a lot of it in Matthew that we spent quite a few weeks in, just so we can have touch points with everything that we've been doing this year. And of course, I need help with that, so let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, Creator of heaven and earth, the one, true, most high God, Yahweh, we ask for your blessing over what is spoken and heard this morning, that it may be put into action in our lives as worship of you and our service to you in your mission for redeeming your world. Your world, And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, I want to start by going back last week to something that John ended us with. John got up here at the end and said, We bear the stamp of the kingdom that is coming, and let it be today. And I thought, whew, those are two powerful statements. That's kind of a sermon just in two, two sentences. So what I want to do is I want to add some stuff over the next few minutes that when we return to this at the end, maybe we'll have even more uh, clarity and more content to add to that statement. When we think about Christian maturity, we normally start thinking about verses like this from 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became an adult, I set aside childish ways. And obviously that's true. But I think what happens is we, we compartmentalize that versus just growing up, right? And I want to I try to challenge that a little bit this morning and say that we don't have to do that. This is true. We grow up. We, we don't always talk like children. We change our vocabulary. We become taller people. We, we get smarter. We understand how to treat people well. All those things are part of maturity, but anybody can do that. That's just one part of being human. There's other parts of being human as well. So we ask the question... What is spiritual maturity then? And if you think about it, um, if it's only one facet of being human, then it's going to be limited. We might even say, was Jesus only spiritual? And I would hope that everybody in here and everybody online would agree, no. Uh, Jesus is the example of what a true human in God's will actually looks like, talks like, and says. But yet, that is a great way to think about what we're trying to do. Uh, my friend, Dr. Heiser, said imitating Jesus is the definition of discipleship, and I think he's right. I think any time we're trying to, to ponder what we should be doing or what we should be saying or how we should be saying it, well, Jesus is the example of how we do that. And I think yet, even there, we get a little confused sometimes because we might say, well, if imitating Jesus is the, de the definition of discipleship, and I live 2,000 plus years after Jesus, then that probably means I just need to think like him. And that goes to John's comment about neuroscience. There's this interesting term that I learned in preparing for this called neurotheology, which I didn't know. It's a combination of neuroscience and theology. And one of the questions that it posits is, do our brains really change from, from spiritual experiences? And where we won't dive into that, because I think all of us agree that they do, we'll look at Romans 12, 1 through 2, that basically tells us that. But here's what's interesting about Romans 12, 1 through 2, that we might know really well, 
is that the first clause of Romans 12, verse 1, says, Therefore I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Not your mind, your bodies. Now, your mind's part of your body, but your mind is informing what your body does. And then it goes on to say, And a live, holy, and pleasing sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable worship or service. Same Greek word there, depending on which English translation defines it which way. And then do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. I would just say to have mature Christian discernment about everything that you're doing. Well, that would lead the question then back to John's comment about, uh, about neuroscience. Is neurotheology the answer then? Are we really just trying to do Christ's brain? Well, if we're really just trying to do Christ's brain, we could grab the Bible and we could grab a couple of books and we could fill our heads with a bunch of information. Blake's now laughing. And we would say, we're done. We're mature. But that, that can't be because this, there's, there's multiple reasons that can't be. One is we can still, focusing on Jesus, say, well, wait a minute. He was a full human lifespan. Someone had to teach Jesus how to walk, how to talk, his alphabet, math, um, you know, obeying, the whole deal. So he grew at, from, a, from an infant to an adult. And we're familiar with this even when we do things new in life. I can start something new, which I've done many times in my life, and I'm sure you have too, and we don't start as an ex- expert because we didn't do it from the time we were babies. We start as a novice, and then as we learn whatever this is, we, began, we become an advanced beginner, and then we become competent in it, and then we com- can become proficient in it, and eventually we might become an expert. And if we choose something else later to do, we start that whole process all over again. So maturity can't just be this one time and done or this just one set of information and be finished. And actually, what we're going to do this morning is always show the scripture that backs these concepts up. We know that from Luke 2, 52, where Jesus increased, grew, advanced in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and people. So he, he grew in cognitive information. He grew in spiritual thinking and discernment. He grew in stature. He became an adult. He became a 33-year-old that was tall and, you know, had a beard and had, had a manly human body. And then in favor with God and people, he learned character. He learned how to interact with people, um, both here in a fallen state and sinful people, and also his father and staying in, the, in his father's will. So what I want to suggest is let's drop spiritual maturity. Let's just call it true maturity in Christ. Now, some people can be immature. I'm not saying that. People definitely who never choose to come to Christ would obviously, by this definition, be immature in some capacity. But true human maturity is actually in Christ, the new, complete, mature human. And we might ask then, okay, well, what is our gauge? Well, this is where Matthew is going to help us out a lot, and we're going to work this a little bit backwards. The gauge is actually faith. All right. If we look in Matthew, what we've already studied this, this year that you read in your, in your journal Bible, some of this stuff should come rushing back to your mind. Look at what happens in chapter 17 when the apostles come back and they cannot heal somebody. And Jesus says, well, the reason that it was not possible for you to heal was because of your little faith. And then he goes on to tell them a verse that we're very familiar with. I tell you that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will be able to say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. But here's the thing, when we mature and we have that faith, we're also smart enough that if moving that mountain is not in God's will, we wouldn't ask the mountain to move. So there's a balance between having the faith and then utilizing and using that faith in the will that Jesus shows us. He, he never did that. He never played parlor tricks. 
He didn't tell mountains to move just to prove that he had faith in the Father. And a mature Christian wouldn't do that either. And then look at chapter 16. When the disciples went uh, to the other side of the lake, this is after the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, they forgot to take bread with them. And Jesus says, watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so they begin to discuss among themselves, is it because we forgot to bring bread? And look at what he says to them in verse 8. When Jesus learned of this, he said, You who have such little faith, why are you arguing among yourselves about having no bread? How could you not understand that I was speaking to you about, uh, about not about bread, but I was telling you about the beware of the Pharisees' yeast, Sadducees' yeast? Okay, great connection to faith, great connection to maturity, right? And, and how could you not understand, understanding the, the cognitive side of it, but, but look how Jesus makes this even clearer over in Matthew. I'm sorry, in Mark. In Mark chapter 8, verse 15, the same statement's made, but Jesus says, watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. What he's really saying is, this yeast, this is, these are philosophies, these are ways of life that the Pharisees represent religious systems that still imprison people. Remember, they're having conversations on whether or not Gentiles need to be circumcised and if they need to keep the whole law of Moses. And Herod, being a worldly government, and one of those two things is probably going to win out for the average citizen to decide to get underneath one of those philosophies or one of those worldviews. And Jesus is saying it's neither one of those. And he goes on to say in Matthew 13, notice all these different Matthew anchors, hopefully, that are coming back to you. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like the yeast of a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Okay, so now, now we're getting somewhere. What if, what if we've been looking incorrectly at what the dough is? What if the dough is actually the world? And if yeast is something that you have an option of, of either a worldly government or a religious system that might be more about the system than about Jesus, or you have Jesus, of those three, I'm picking Jesus. And if I pick Jesus, and you pick Jesus with me, then mature Christians become the body of Christ. They become Jesus' church that's the yeast that permeates the whole world. And if that sounds familiar, uh, that we might say Christians are meant to permeate the entire world, you can flip over to Revelation, and it basically confirms that. Look at what the seventh angel who blew his trumpet says. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So then we ask this question, what is our role? If this is what we're doing, if we're the yeast and we're supposed to permeate the whole world, what is our role? Well, this will bring up a classic, sorry to say it this way, but Church of Christ debate. This will bring up, uh, are we about works or are we not about works? Well, I think the answer is yes. We're about works and we're not about works. And here's what I mean. Turn over to James, and he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, so there's the, there's the gauge, but does not have any works? Can this kind of faith save them? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and stay well, but you do not give them what they need, what the body needs, what good is it? So also faith, if it does not have works, is dead, being by itself. So this might bring Matthew 25 up to your mind that we studied earlier, and it'll flash back here again in a second. And then just succinctly, look at this. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, in other words, 
if, if you're not a human being, if you don't have a body, soul, and spirit, you're something, but you're not human anymore, then you're dead. Then also, faith without works is dead. Well, if we use that logic, that faith without works is dead, we can also use this logic. If faith without works is dead, then faith with works is real. Works are a sign of mature faith in Christ. If you're doing things, it's because your mind has informed you to do those things because those are the things that Jesus did. And so the works will show our faith and will show our neuroscience, as John mentioned. Our neurotheology is actually working. Luke makes this clear. Uh, a couple of different verses here. I skipped around a little bit to get them all on one side slide. Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. There comes the neurotheology. There comes the godly way of him being able to, hey, this isn't just supposed to be a mental ascent. This isn't just supposed to be data that we have and we can win Bible Bowl and we can do things like that. This is supposed to be how my worldview changes and how I inform my life. And when we do that, we're witnesses of these things. And then, fascinatingly, this is probably the tie-in to the Holy Spirit Acts 2 uh, lessons that Les presented. It says, and I have there in brackets what it actually really implies in Greek, and look, I am sending on you what my Father promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now, why is it important that he's sending something on us or on them at the day of Pentecost that they didn't have before? And why does he say this? Why does he say, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I'm going away. He's getting ready to ascend. He's had his, he's had his period of time with the disciples and the apostles after his resurrection. And he says to them, it's actually good that I'm going away. For, for if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove to the world they're wrong concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And the main reason that that's possible is highlighted at the bottom, because the ruler of this world has been condemned and judged, which is Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, and now he is the one who can help us permeate the world. But here's, here's what's really fascinating. I don't know if you've thought about this before or not. I hadn't. The gift of the Holy Spirit coming on us is the omnipresence of Jesus. When Jesus was in the bodily life that he was in, people had to go and see him physically. They had to be within proximity of him. Lepers were healed. Blind were, blind were given sight. People were raised from the dead. But they had to go find Jesus. They had to bring him somewhere. What he's saying is with the Holy Spirit, the reason it's better is look at what our verses tell us from Matthew. Matthew eighteen twenty. For where two or three are assembled in my name, I am there among them. Or 28, 20b, the second half, and remember I'm with you always to the end of the age. Because that is the better. That is how he's everywhere. That's it, that is how he works through us all around the world. And I think that omnipresence is what the Spirit enables. All right, now we have to keep this in tension with the fact that we're very busy people. We have children, we have jobs, we have spouses, we have all kinds of manner of things to do, right? And we're supposed to have some enjoyment out of life every once in a while too. It can't just be suffer and suffer and suffer and work and work and work and never have anything. God, God wants us to have a whole well-rounded life. So we might look at somebody like Elizabeth Elliot saying that fear arises when we imagine everything depends on us. If we take all this weight on us, walk out of this room, walk out of this building today and say, well, 
I've got to go do all this myself. I've got to keep up with exactly how many people I've baptized. I've got to keep up with exactly how many people I'm studying with, all these different things. Those are all good things, but they can also put a lot of weight on us. And if you don't think that you've heard that before, you actually have, because that's the advice from Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, to him when he did the exact same thing. He was hearing all those cases from the Israelites, and Jethro came to him and said, this isn't good. You're going to burn yourself out. This is too heavy. This is too much for you to do by yourself. And Jesus is inviting us to do the same thing. Jesus is saying, join something bigger than ourselves. Keep doing the personal Bible studies. Keep baptizing people if if you are so called to do it. Think about it. You You might be sent next to a chariot like Philip was. You might have somebody that all you have to ask is, do you understand what you're reading or do you have any questions? And if you can baptize that person, great. God bless you for doing it. But if you're sitting there thinking, I haven't baptized anybody, and I don't know that I'm doing enough, then that might be a little bit of negative stress. Here are some suggestions on how we can join join things bigger than ourselves. We have tons of options. This is not going to be exhaustive, but I tried to hit lots of different programs that we do in here from lots of great members that are doing different things with these things. We have Jesus calling people out of prison, integrating them back into society. That's part of discipleship. You don't have to be the one that's doing all the lessons if you support TPOM. You know TPOM's doing that, so you're joining and you're, you're relying on people at TPOM to do that, and you're making that happen, and hopefully you get to have some engagement with it. But just a donation to TPOM monthly is making that ministry work and those people actually being able to do the things that they're doing. We've had people from this congregation go to Honduras and give eyeglasses to people who can't see very well. And I would suggest that Jesus is calling people through that clear vision that they have physically to also clear vision to him. We've had people go to Baja and hand out food. There's the Matthew 25 connection. If they've handed out food to those people in Baja, Mexico, they've handed out food to Jesus, even if they didn't realize they did it. Habitat. Little update I got this week. Our family has been chosen. We're going to break ground in either late December or January, um, and we're going to build a house next year finally. And I'm excited about that. And Jesus is calling people through house building because why would someone build a house for people? Why would we go do that stuff? Why would we show those works if we didn't have faith in Jesus and didn't want people to meet him? National Inner City Ministry on Monday nights. Kids that need a place to come and be with other people and have relationships and understand Bible stories and get a good meal and be able to play and to have a representation that the world's not the only view that they normally see it through from, from their, uh, their position in, in society. Room in the Inn. We have people who are homeless. That This ministry started, and as Steve Barber can tell you, this is, this is something that unites all Christians. This goes across all stripes of Christianity where people can come in here and help people get off the street and have a place during the winter, especially during the cold weather, to experience hospitality of Jesus. And then you know me, I've even got my socks on this morning for the chosen. Uh, This is a global phenomenon. Dallas Jenkins wants to reach one billion people with the message of Jesus. And if we're paying it forward and we're helping that programming in some way by buying clothing or watching the videos or paying for the videos to be available for other people or the DVDs or whatever, we're also participating in that. And then finally, one that's near and dear to Cheryl and I is One Child, which this is, uh, this is a program out of Zimbabwe. 
we have adopted a one child for $39 a month. We get to communicate with her. She has Christian education and uh, discipleship and mentoring that goes on there in Zimbabwe, and we get to be a part of that all the way up till she turns 18 and then moves on uh, to another program or goes about her dreams of becoming a nurse or whatever it is that, that each one of the sponsored children has. And we'll, we'll have more to say on that, hopefully, after the new year. So imitating Jesus is the definition of discipleship. But, and, it's also the sign of maturity, I think. Jesus exemplifies human maturity through everything he does and says, always consistent with the Father's will, and he asks people to join him. So we might say this, disciples making disciples can be more than what we've limited it to sometimes in the past. It's God calling people out of the kingdom of darkness through all these different ways, through you personally, through someone you may baptize, through someone you're having a personal Bible study with, yes. And if you're busy and you want to do more and you have the means to do more, join things that are bigger than you because he's also calling them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light through those things too, through Christ's omnipresence in the world, Jesus' church, the body of Christ operating in all these different areas and opportunities. Mature Christians have manifold ways to join God's mission for the world through the Son. So, Blake, let's keep up the good work. I want to be a worker for the Lord. I want to love and trust His holy word. I want to sing and pray and be busy every day in the I need to be a worker for the Lord. I need to do a whole bunch more stuff. 
Now, in Isaiah 43.1, God says, don't be afraid, for I will, some of your translations say protect, some say redeem, some say ransom, some say rescue, a few say save. I will save you, is what God's saying. I call you by name and you are mine. That is such a promise that if one of us is too busy and we don't quite read everything right and we miss an opportunity, he has somebody else lined up behind us. Okay, Sam missed that cue and he didn't get that done. I'll send John. I'll send Cheryl. I'll send you know Jane. I'll send whoever it is, and they'll go do it. We're constantly being invited into representing God and being in situations where He's saving people. And here's the other good news: saved in Jesus is saved. All right. And what I mean by that is, it is not us. Jesus saves. We don't. And we cannot add anything to Jesus' saving grace. So if we think that we're doing something like we are more or less saved by how much works we do, we're, we're interpreting all of James incorrectly. That's not the case. We're saved. But because we're saved and because we have faith in Jesus, it leads us to wanting to take action. Our brains put our bodies in gear and our talents and we do things. Salvation in biblical theology then is not merit-based. It's faith-based. And this is not who we want to emulate, okay? But here's another biblical example of that. If you're sitting there going like, well, I don't, I don't know. I hope you're not saying that. But watch, watch this. The thief on the cross had faith in Jesus. No baptism that we know of, no communion, no confirmation, no mission trip, no volunteerism, no financial gifts, and no church clothes. As a matter of fact, he's a man who's probably guilty as charged or he wouldn't be hanging there. Naked, dying on a cross, not even capable of bending his knees to pray. And yet, he walks into paradise with Jesus at the exact same time because Jesus saved him. Now, am I suggesting that we all try to be like the thief on the cross and just don't hit a lick of a stick and not do anything and know that we'll be saved? No. I'm saying that if Jesus can save that individual, we don't have to put all the stress on us, on us thinking there's only one way for us to save people because God's going to save the people he promised he's going to save. And we can walk out of here with a lot less burden on us like Moses had. When Jethro said, hey, there's an easier way. Join in all these other things that are going on. Become part of the good news. And here's the really, really, really good news. John 3, 16 and 17. God loved the world in such a way that he sent his son that anyone who believes in him, anyone who has believing faith in him, should not perish but have eternal life. And then this next verse. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save it. That's the good news. And I think that goes back to John's statement of how do we get to maturity in that? How do we get back to where we can say we, ban we bear the stamp of the kingdom that is coming? Let it be us. Let it be today. I think, I think in a way that's the lesson we can learn from the thief on the cross. He had nothing to offer. Nothing. And technically we don't either. God took him. Jesus saved him because he saved him. Because he believed in him and because he loved him. And he's going to save you and me the exact same way. We can, we can baptize people. We can disciple people. And sometimes we think we're not. And other times we think we are. And I think that's Matthew 25 too. Notice that those two animals represented the sheep and the goats. Neither one of them realized what was going on. 
One said, well, if we'd known it was you, we would have. And the other said, well, we didn't even know it was you, and we did. So I think that's really what we're invited into. And I think one way to think about that in our context today, you've heard a term called an influencer. You've got these people being paid on social media to influence people, right? Well, we're the original influencers. We're the kingdom influencers. And we influence through love, justice, peace, mercy, and John's mention of joy. We have a better story. So I would suggest this. If you want to experience the joy of helping others come to Christ and gain the peace that Jesus provides, and if you want to appreciate and experience the joy of living as a mature citizen of Jesus' coming kingdom in the present, and you want to have the joy of being able to say, may the kingdom come today and mean it, Anything that's keeping you from doing that, anything that's blocking, any need that you have, there'll be elders in the both foyers, front and back, ministers all over the room. Let us know what you need as we come and sing.